Welcome back to The Jewish Story, a Jewish history podcast for the 21st century. In this show, we'll take a look back at the history of the Jewish people, relying on historical documents, archaeologic artifacts, and linguistic data to paint a picture of the past. Last week, we spoke with Rabbi Matthew Leibel about the first 800 years of the Jewish story. This week, we'll skip ahead about 100 years to the time just after the Greeks swept through the Middle East and conquered much of the Persian Empire. As usual, before we dive into the history, let's do a quick geopolitical update. Until the mid-4th century BCE, the Persians had had a few hundred stable years of being the dominant power in the Middle East. But all of a sudden, in the late 4th century, Alexander III, commonly known as Alexander the Great, swept through the entire empire, completely overtaking it within just 10 years and creating a new empire known as the Macedonian Empire, named after the ancient Greek tribe from which they were descended. At the time we pick up our story, the Greeks were essentially the big shots of the region, having swept through from Greece into Israel, Jordan, Syria, Persia, and south into Egypt. Despite being a brilliant military leader, Alexander the Great's reign didn't last long. He died at the age of 34, and upon his death left a pretty huge power vacuum. The result was the fracturing of the Macedonian Empire into four pieces, each one led by a top Macedonian general, vying for control of the land Alexander had left leaderless. These four sub-factions included the Seleucids to the northeast, mostly in Persia, the Ptolemies to the southwest in Egypt, and the Antigonids and Cassanids who ruled over an area of land from Israel through the northern Middle East and into Greece. The Seleucids and Ptolemies quickly grew to overtake their rivals, leaving just two groups battling for domination of the Middle East. And it is in this political climate, with the Seleucids to the north, the Ptolemies to the south, and Israel smack dab in the middle of the two, but technically ruled by the Ptolemies, that we pick up our story. Most of what we know comes again from papyri, archaeologic excavation, and the writings of a Roman Jewish historian named Flavius Josephus, who wrote in the first century CE. We'll hear a lot more about Josephus later in the podcast. This week, just like in episode 2, we'll compare and contrast the lives of Jews in two main locations, Egypt and Jerusalem, which were both under Greek rule at the time. Let's begin in Egypt in the Fayum region, which is located 40 kilometers south of Cairo, just west of the Nile River. The reason for the particular focus on this area is the abundance of papyri and archaeologic sites that exist there. Jews in the early days of Greek rule actually bore a striking resemblance to Jews in modern-day North America in the way that they were assimilated. Many spoke the common regional dialect, Greek, as their primary language, and had Greek names, often Greekicized versions of Hebrew names, like Yakubus for Yaakov or Jason for Yehoshua. They seemed to have a great deal of social mobility, holding down jobs as tax collectors, members of the royal court, and regional governors. They dressed like Greeks and lived in Greek cities in fairly substantial numbers. For example, Alexandria, a major Greek city in northern Egypt, was home to nearly 200,000 Jews, almost one-third of its total population although many chose to reside in the Delta District, ostensibly creating a Jewish quarter of the city. Despite all of this integration, 
Jews in Greek-ruled Egypt still continued to practice their Jewish traditions and read Hebrew. Evidence of this comes from papyri dated to the mid-2nd century, on which are written the Ten Commandments and the Shema prayer, which were commonly recited back-to-back -back in those days. Jews also seem to have had the option to use Torah law in legal matters of marriage, divorce, or loans, but really only did so when it would benefit their case. For the most part, they went by local Greek-Egyptian law, by which women could own property and reclaim dowries after divorce, just like in Elephantine, and lenders could charge interest rates to fellow Jews. Greek cities like Alexandria, with sizable Jewish populations, were peppered with a major Jewish invention of the time, following suit from Ezra's great Torah reading in Jerusalem 100 years before. This invention was the synagogue. In Greek, these buildings were called prosuche, initially referring to an assembly or gathering for Torah reading, but later coming to refer to the actual building itself. Synagogues were quite pervasive in Greek-Jewish Egypt. They were typically built in classical Greek style, sporting front porticos with sloping triangular roofs, aisles flanked by columns with decorative moldings, and mosaic floors filled with imagery. Some have inscriptions reading Theos Hispistos, a direct translation of El Elyon, or God Most High in Hebrew. One description of the Great Synagogue in Alexandria from Rabbi Judah ben Eli gives us a sense of what the more fantastic of these buildings would have looked like. Rows of double columns, 70 golden chairs for each of the elders of the synagogue, studded with pearls, plus seating sections for each of the Jewish crafts and trades. It was such a big synagogue that the chants of the reader could hardly be heard from the back, and so the chazan would have to wave a large white flag to alert the congregation when to chant Amen. The ancient synagogues also had all the usual suspects we know from modern shuls. Presidents, chazanim, caretakers, and occasionally even security guards. Interestingly, the sexes were not separated during prayer during these days. There's no evidence of any mechitzas, which seems to have been a later invention. They did, however, often contain areas for housing Jews traveling from abroad, and some were even given the right to grant asylum. Nearly all shuls had running water for ritual purification, and it seems that the clergy may have helped with burials as well. When Jews of the time died, however, they were not buried in the earth in a simple casket as is tradition today. Instead, they were buried in underground stone chambers with niches cut out for specific families. When tombs were decorated, it was with classic Greek columns, nothing particularly Jewish about it. When it came to the relationships between the Greeks and Jews, there seemed to be a bit of a fascination with one another. We know this from poetry, philosophy, drama, and history written by Jews of the time, who seemed to believe that they had a lot in common with the Greeks. They saw Hellenism as an extension of Judaism. For example, they felt Zeus was a paganized version of God, and that Moses was the origin of Hellenistic ethics and law. One Jewish writer at the time, Aristobulus of Panius, writes that Plato had actually studied the Torah, and that Pythagoras' theorem was based in ancient Jewish wisdom. For their part, Greeks would have seen the Jews mainly as mercenaries and soldiers. After all, this had been their primary role in the wider world for centuries. But at around this time, there is some evidence that the Greeks had begun to see Jews as something more mysterious and mystical. One example of this fascination with Jews comes from Theophrastos of Eresus, 
a student of Aristotle. In his writings, he characterizes Jews as philosophers by birth, who talked constantly to each other about the deity, and who at night made observations of the stars, gazing at them and calling on God in prayer. So, that gives you a sense of what life was like for Jews in Ptolemaic Egypt, integrated but not completely assimilated. Now, let's take a look at what life was like in Jerusalem under Greek rule. Greek Jerusalem around 200 BCE was growing fast. The population was in the tens of thousands, and the size of the city had grown to around 8 kilometers squared, about one quarter the size of Winnipeg, Canada. A lot of these people were drawn to Jerusalem to participate in all of the activity going on at the Second Temple. Fires were kept burning day and night in order to always be ready for ritual sacrifice, which became both a spiritual exercise as well as a performance, drawing quite the crowd. In addition to the Levites and Kohanim who ran the temple, a council of elders acted as designates to negotiate with the Greeks about taxes and subsidies to help keep the temple doors open. As with any booming city, the farmers and tradespeople supplying Jerusalem were turning a profit as well. There was a high demand for food, which meant that the surrounding countryside was pumping out wheat, olives, grapes for wine, and pastures for lambs and goats as fast as they could. The Judean farmers would set up stalls near the city walls to sell their wares, as did Tyrians who sold fish, merchants from Ashkelon, Ptolemais, and Gaza selling ceramics, and Phoenicians who made fabulous blown glass. All of this increasing trade between local peoples meant more people coming and going, and so old port cities needed to be expanded and new ones built. And with more traffic, Greek culture was rapidly spreading across the region. In every major city and town, Greeks set up the three institutions which were central to their way of life and culture, the gym, the ephibium, or school, and the theater. For the most part, Jews were not heavily ingrained into these Greek institutions, and mostly kept to their own communities or neighborhoods. Part of this avoidance came from some key cultural differences between Greek and Jewish cultures, and the gymnasium was a particular sticking point. Exercise done in Greek gyms of the day was always done in the nude, since the Greeks loved to show off their parts. In fact, they were so proud of them that some actually took to wearing a kinodesme, a thin leather thong that looped around the back, wound under the scrotum, and tied in a little bow just above the tip of the penis to prevent the glands from showing in public. Having such reverence for the natural human form, the Greeks could not comprehend the idea of a circumcised penis. In fact, a rumor began to spread that Jews performed circumcision in order to deprive themselves of sexual pleasure. So most Jews stayed away from the gym, trying to avoid any penis shaming. However, for some, the call of the gym was just too strong. In order to blend in, those Jews who yearned to participate in these Greek traditions without getting laughed out of the gym underwent a procedure called an epispasm. Now, circumcision back in this era of Jewish history seemed not to involve the removal of the entire foreskin, but just a portion of it. So, in an epispasm, the foreskin that remained was painted with honey or lotion to soften it, then stretched out to try to mimic the full foreskins of the Greek gym bros. This procedure became so common that the rabbis of the day had long debates about whether Jews who had undergone epispasm 
could be recircumcised afterwards, or whether it was too risky a medical operation. It was this conundrum that eventually had circumcision change to include the removal of the entire foreskin. So, as has been common in our story so far, the Jews were left in a position of relative peace and prosperity, but still othered in many ways by the surrounding population. Now that we've gotten a sense of what Jewish life was like in Greek-ruled Judea and Egypt, let's get back into our story. Until 200 BCE, Israel and Egypt were mostly ruled by the Ptolemies, although there were numerous back-and-forth wars with the Seleucids, called the Syrian Wars. While the Seleucids and Ptolemies were battling for dominance in the Middle East, several new empires were starting to gain ground across the sea. The Roman Republic, which had started to expand out of Rome and into Italy in the 4th and 3rd centuries, had now captured most of the Italian peninsula and was amassing a pretty powerful army. Macedon, the birthplace of Alexander the Great, was now ruled by King Philip and was also a growing military power. In 200 BCE, the Ptolemies, under their general, Scopus of Aetolia, and the Seleucids, under ruler Antiochus III, once again met on the battlefield in the city of Panium, in the foothills of Mount Hermon. The battle was intense, and ultimately Antiochus prevailed, a major win for the Seleucids, who for the first time now ruled over Israel. After winning the battle, Antiochus proclaimed that under his rule, the ancestral laws and practices of the Jews would be protected. He would ban foreigners from entering the sacred temple, prohibit the import of unkosher meat into Jerusalem, and would create some tax exemptions for Jews. But after getting a taste of victory at the Battle of Panium and seeing all of his neighboring empires gaining ground, Antiochus felt the urge to expand his own territory as well. His game plan was to expand both southward into Egypt and westward into Turkey and the nearby Roman territories. This was quite the ambitious plan, and Antiochus was no fool. He knew he would need an ally in order to have any hope of taking on the Romans. So he reached out to King Philip of Macedon, and together they marched on Rome. As expected, the Romans clapped back with a vengeance. They completely destroyed the Seleucids at the Battle of Magnesia in 190 BCE sending them scampering home with their tails between their legs, and Antiochus III's son, also named Antiochus, was captured and taken back to Rome, where he was held hostage for 15 years. This great defeat at the hands of the Romans, plus the loss of his son, turned Antiochus III into a broken man, and also left the Seleucid Empire destitute, meaning that they could no longer afford to keep their promise of tax-free living to the Jews of Jerusalem. The somewhat desperate financial situation was by no means a good thing, but some Jews saw it as an opportunity. Remember that since Judea and Samaria had been conquered by the Persians, and later the Greeks, there had been no Jewish king in Jerusalem. Without a king, the most powerful position of religious and cultural authority lay with the high priest, the Kohen Gadol. Although previously this position had had to be filled by a direct descendant of Aharon, Moses' brother from the Exodus story. In this new Greek world, it was the Greek ruler who more or less decided who would fill the seat. And so, with the empire desperate for cash, the wealthier families of Judea saw an opportunity to seize some power for themselves. 
At the beginning of the second century, just after the Battle of Magnesia, the reigning high priest in Jerusalem was a man named Onias III. Onias was a Jew who was a descendant of Aharon, and he was quite opposed to the increasing dominance of Greek culture in Jewish life. He didn't exactly hide this opinion from the public and fought quite hard to preserve Jewish traditions and law in Jerusalem. Now, this next bit of the story may seem like a tangent, but bear with me. Onias had a daughter, and like any good father would do at the time, he was scoping out marriage prospects for her. The man who eventually caught his eye was a non-Jewish army commander from Ammon, that Jordanian kingdom we've heard about before. The man's name was Tobiah, and he was in charge of a military fort on the east side of the Jordan River. It may seem odd that a Jewish Kohen Gadol would choose a non-Jewish foreigner from another kingdom to marry his Jewish daughter, but it turns out that religion doesn't matter so much as long as you've got some cash and influence. And Tobiah was loaded. In addition to being a commander, he was also a tax collector, and with the Seleucid Empire increasingly strapped for cash in their constant struggle with the Ptolemies, he was in a prime position to negotiate between the two. So, Onias married his daughter off to Tobiah, and her new husband used his wealth and influence to build them a stronghold in the Jordan Valley. This fortress actually still stands today, and is known as Iraq al-Amir. The palace, which was greatly expanded by Tobiah's grandson Hyrcanus, is a large two-story structure built of lavish limestone, complete with Greek-style columns and a carving of a fully-maned lion suckling its cub on the roof. Originally, it would have been surrounded by an ornamental lake as well. It functioned both as a military base and also as a business center for Tobiah's rapidly growing estate. While Tobias and his family were living the good life in Jordan, and Onias III was reigning as Kohen Gadol in Jerusalem, Onias's brother Jason was having a rough time. The relationship between the two brothers was basically like Mufasa and Scar from The Lion King. Onias had all the power and glory, and Jason was sulking in his shadow. But something was about to happen that would change everything. In 175 BCE, Seleucus IV, the current ruler of the Seleucid Empire, was assassinated. And, in a triumphant return, Antiochus IV, the son of Antiochus III, was released from Roman custody and returned to Seleucid territory to take his place as king. Having been a prisoner of the Romans for so long, he was eager to make a show of dominance to prove that he was strong enough to lead. But the Seleucid Empire was still running short on cash, and he just couldn't afford to make any major play at the Ptolemies. Jason, seeing an opportunity to seize some power, reached out to the new king and offered him some money to wage another campaign against the Ptolemies. But there was a catch. In exchange, Jason asked for Antiochus to kick Onias to the curb and make him, Jason, the new Kohen Gadol. Seeing the benefit in this deal, Antiochus agreed, and in 174 BCE, Jason officially replaced his brother as Kohen Gadol in Jerusalem. In contrast to his brother, Jason saw no problem at all with Greek assimilation and aimed to make Jerusalem into a true Greek city. He had a gymnasium built in Jerusalem, just a few blocks from the temple, encouraged Jews to wear Greek-style hats, and planned to send a delegation of Jewish athletes to the ancient Olympic Games at Tyre. 
And of course, he honored his promise to Antiochus IV to send that money for another military campaign. Since there were no credit cards or e-transfers in the 2nd century BCE, the funds had to be transported by wagon, and as such, Jason needed to send someone reliable to accompany the money on the road. He assigned the job to the brother of one of the temple administrators, a man named Menelaus. Unfortunately for Jason, though, Menelaus had learned a thing or two from the new high priest and had his own plans to gain some influence. While dropping off the money to Antiochus, Menelaus negotiated his own ascension to the role of high priest, deposing Jason and taking the priesthood for himself. Menelaus liked the way this new power felt and had no intention of giving it up. And so, having seen firsthand how easily bribable Antiochus IV was, he started to hunt down any potential competition. Shortly after returning to Jerusalem, Menelaus had the former Kohen Gadol, Onias, executed. Jason, seeing that his head was probably next on the chopping block, fled the city in a hurry and took refuge in Hyrcanus's compound in the Jordan Valley. Menelaus also had no problem with Greek-Jewish integration and wanted to make sure he kept Antiochus happy so he could retain his place as Kohen Gadol. So, as one of his first acts, he authorized the establishment of the Akra, a military compound for Greek soldiers in Jerusalem, basically turning Jerusalem into an occupied city. The building of this base required the demolition of a large area of property in an increasingly crowded Jerusalem, and the Jerusalemites were not pleased. They began to riot. As Jerusalem was rioting, Jason was still laying low in Hyrcanus's compound. And as he hid, he would hear rumors coming out of the city. He heard about Menelaus's building of a big Greek bastion in Jerusalem. He heard about the riots, and he also heard a rumor that Antiochus IV had died in battle against the Ptolemies and Romans, leaving the Seleucid Empire without a king. To Jason, this all seemed like a perfect storm for him to take back his place as Kohen Gadol. So, with some financial help from Hyrcanus, he gathered a small army of spearmen and marched across the Jordan River towards Jerusalem. Jason's army was actually successful in breaching the walls, and being a pretty vindictive guy, he exacted his revenge on all whom he felt had betrayed him. He and his army slaughtered every Greek soldier in Jerusalem along with thousands of Jews who he felt had not been loyal to him. He sent Menelaus running and reclaimed the high priesthood. As it turns out, though, the rumors Jason had heard weren't all exactly accurate. Although Antiochus IV had indeed lost a battle with the Ptolemies and Romans, he was in fact very much alive. He had negotiated his release from the Romans and was on his way back home, humiliated after his defeat. When he heard about Jason's takeover of Jerusalem, including his slaughter of all those Greek soldiers, Antiochus became furious and blamed the Jews as a whole for the massacre. Over the course of three days, he and his army slaughtered 40,000 Jews, including women and children, and shipped off an equal number as slaves to be sold on the Phoenician slave markets, the bounty of which would help ease the burden on the Seleucid treasury. But Antiochus also came for the Jewish culture, all Jewish rituals were banned, including Torah reading, circumcision, mikveh bathing, and Shabbat observance. Jews were forced to eat pork at spear point, 
and the temple was desecrated and sacked. Hyrcanus, now back in his fortress after Jason's coup, could see the writing on the wall and committed suicide before Antiochus could come to kill him. Jason, for his part, became a fugitive, running from city to city, pursued before all men as the hated forsaker of the law, first into Egypt and then into the land of the Macedonians, where he died in exile. It is with this backdrop of Greek terror that the story of Hanukkah emerges. The historical sources for this part of the story include the writings of Flavius Josephus, but mainly include the 1st and 2nd Maccabees, which were written by the Hasmoneans themselves in the late 2nd century BCE, some 40 years into their dynasty. As you will see, the Hasmoneans were on guard against accusations that they had usurped the priesthood, and so these self-histories were in effect a means of propaganda to present themselves as the makers of divinely wrought miracles in the style of Moses and Abraham. The holiday of Hanukkah, made up by the Hasmoneans and first presented in these books, was explicitly created to be celebrated with the same importance as Yom Kippur, Sukkot, and Simchat Torah, three of the biggest holidays in the Jewish calendar. So we need to take the information they give us with a grain of salt. Antiochus IV continued his tirade against the Jews, sending his soldiers from town to town, forcing Jews across Judea to engage in public acts of paganism, sacrificing and eating pigs being one of his favorite acts of torture. Those who didn't obey were tortured and killed in the most brutal way possible. This sweep of anti-Jewish brutality eventually found its way to Modi'in, a small town about 20 miles outside of Jerusalem. As was their custom, a group of Greek soldiers descended upon the town, ordering every Jew to sacrifice a pig to Zeus and then eat it while the soldiers watched. The Greeks didn't normally encounter all that much resistance, or at least none that they couldn't handle. But the town priest in Modi'in, Matityahu Hasmoneus, and his five sons refused to submit. Instead, they came forward, kicked the altar to the ground, and murdered the Greek soldiers. And thus, the spark was lit that would start the fire of the Maccabean Revolt. After taking their brave stand, Matityahu and his sons took off for the hills and hid out there, gathering followers rapidly as more and more Jews fled from Greek oppression. The group became what was essentially a group of guerrilla fighters, who would ride into various Greek-ruled towns, smash up idols and pagan altars, and then retreat back to the hills. You can think of them as ancient Jewish Robin Hoods. The Hasmoneans also took to circumcising those Jews who had been unable to be circumcised previously for fear of Greek retaliation. This counter-campaign against the Greeks continued for years, with Matityahu's middle son, Judah, nicknamed Judah Maccabee, or Judah the Hammer in Greek, taking over as leader upon his father's passing. As Judah assumed command, the Hasmoneans won a series of stunning victories against the Greeks and eventually developed a reputation among nearby powers as a force to be reckoned with. In 165 BCE, after years of successful incursions, the Hasmoneans finally took their big stand and recaptured Jerusalem from the Greeks, throwing them out and cleaning up the temple which the Greeks had desecrated. For the first time in over a century, Jerusalem was returned to Jewish rule with Judah Maccabee 
as their king. Join us next week to see what happened next with the Hasmonean dynasty. Next time on The Jewish Story.